Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Nathaniel Philbrick about his account of the final year of the American Revolution, entitled In the Hurricane's Eye, Genius of George Washington and the Victory at Yorktown. Nathaniel, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you on New Books Network. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Yes, I am 62 years old, uh, moved to Nantucket 32 years ago. Uh, I was an English major in college. But soon after moving to Nantucket, uh, developed a real interest in the island's whaling history. Nantucket was the whaling capital of the world in the 18th and 19th centuries. And that led me to writing my first work of history, Away Offshore, which is a history of the island through the whaling era. And from that uh, came In the Heart of the Sea, uh, uh, my book about the whale ship Essex, the uh, real whale ship from Nantucket that was rammed and sunk by a whale uh, that inspired the climax of Moby Dick. And from then, uh, just about every book has led organically to the next. Uh, there was Sea of Glory, uh, which was about the... Uh, first U.S. exploring expedition, a naval expedition that sailed around the world, uh, discovered the, uh, determined that Antarctica was a continent, came back with so many artifacts that the Smithsonian Institution uh, was founded uh, to house them all. And uh, that was followed by Mayflower, about uh, the, the first years of Plymouth Colony. Uh, and uh, from that has led a book about Custer's Last Stand, called The Last Stand, uh, and then uh, three books about the American Revolution, uh, Bunker Hill, uh, in, uh, which is about how the outbreak of the revolution in Boston, followed by Valiant Ambition, uh, focusing on Washington and Benedict Arnold. Uh, that ends with uh, Arnold's unsuccessful attempt uh, to turn over West Point to the British, and now what we'll be talking about today in the hurricane's eye, which basically takes up from uh, where that book ends. And yes, I still live on Nantucket. It's been important to my um, beginnings as a historian, and it's a great place to call home. It sounds very nice. You mentioned that your uh, books sort of develop organically. What was it about Valiant Ambition that led you to this book? Yeah, a valiant ambition focuses on the relationship between Arnold and Washington. And I have to say, I I knew Arnold was a fascinating character, but uh, it was Washington. I I, I I finally 
uh, came away with just the most uh, utmost respect. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those people who grew up in the 60s and has a hard time thinking of anyone as a hero, which I think is one of the most overused terms uh, we have today. And uh, But I have to say, Washington really qualifies as that in terms of his role during the revolution. And um, and I, I after a valiant ambition, I just couldn't let Washington go. I had to see where it led, and uh, and I knew that it would lead to um, uh, the year of Yorktown, an amazing year in which uh, what had been a, a six-year conflict suddenly comes to a a, a very surprising conclusion. And so uh, that that's uh, I knew uh, as soon as. Uh, uh, Valiant Ambition was done, I needed to write the book that would become In the Hurricane's Eye. There's another element that, as I was reading your book, I was thinking harken back to some of your earlier works, which is you emphasize something that not necessarily that people don't necessarily think of when they think of the American Revolution, which was the impact of the sea. And I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining how important the sea was to the final year of the American Revolution, and in particular, this very fascinating discussion you have about George Washington's relationship to it. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. The sea is, is I think, the surprise, surprising element uh, for most people when it comes to the American Revolution. We, you know, we think of it starting um, with those militiamen at uh, Lexington and Concord, and that is how it started. But it didn't end that way. It wasn't the militiamen that uh, defeated uh, the, the British Army. It was actually the French Navy. Uh, because what Washington uh, understood, and you know, we think of Washington as being permanently attached to his horse as a planter and a general, a land-bound general, but the fact of the matter is, he grew up in Tidewater, Virginia, on on a river, and had an intimate understanding of 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 the water. Uh, not only the rivers are in the Tidewater, but at one point he he sailed to Barbados, the only time he ventured off the North American continent. And what he realized, as soon as France entered the conflict as our ally in 1778, what had stymied him up until then was that the British Navy had a stranglehold on the American coast. And as long as they controlled the coast, there was no way he was going to be able to deliver the blow uh, that would force Britain to the negotiating table. He realized he needed a navy. Uh, to neutralize the, the, the British threat, and only then would he be able to win the victory that could uh, win a, this country, our independence. And so as soon as France entered the war, uh, he was intent on using the French Navy to gain uh, what was known as naval superiority. If that could happen in just a brief window uh, of, of weeks and months, uh, Perhaps he could gain that victory. And so uh, for the next uh, three years, that's what he set out to do. And time and time again, he would be frustrated. Uh, the, all the pieces would be in place, but it just wouldn't happen. The, the sea is, is ever-changeable. No one can control the sea. And as Washington discovered, um, uh, the British had a... a uh, a well-earned reputation as being the preeminent naval power in the world. And it was just for the circumstances to to fall into place in which the French were able to defeat the British uh, in a sea battle that would give uh, the Allied forces naval superiority, a lot of things had to fall into place. And, uh, and, and the, in the hurricane's eye is the story 
which, against all the odds, everything fell into place uh, with the naval battle, uh, the, the Battle of the Chesapeake, fought off the entrance to the Chesapeake Bay, in which the French defeated the British, who were intent on rescuing Lord Cornwallis's army of 7,000 soldiers at Yorktown, at the end of the point formed by the York River and James River. When the French won that battle, uh, Yorktown, the, the siege that would win us our independence, became a fait accompli. And so, as I argue, and in the hurricane's eye, uh, what won us our independence uh, was were not those militiamen at, at Lexington Green. Uh, it was a naval battle in which no American ships participated uh, that, that created the conditions uh, that ultimately allowed us to be an independent nation. And I think it's a side of the revolution uh, most Americans uh, know little about, and uh, that's what made writing in the hurricane's eye such a fun exercise for me. You describe the circumstances that lead up to uh, the Battle of the Chesapeake, and one of the points you make in your book is how Washington's uh, hopes resting on the French Navy, uh, as they were, it was it wasn't just that necessarily that these pieces had to fall into place, but he was hoping that a navy which had had so little success against the British up until that point was going to succeed. And yet you describe how that was not necessarily such a far-fetched notion, given the transformation that the uh, French Navy was uh, undergoing at the time. Yeah, it's it's one of the most spectacular transformations, I think, um, uh, a Navy has ever undergone. Uh, there was the Seven Years' War, what was often referred to as the French and Indian War, when you looked at what happened in North America uh, that preceded uh, the Revolution. And during that, uh, France had been humiliated by the British, particularly the French Navy. And uh, uh, even before that, the Seven Years' War was over, uh, France began a program of what was known as revanche, which, uh, which translates as revenge. <laughs> they were going to create a new navy, a newly organized navy, with the intent of, of winning back uh, their country's place at, uh, as a, basically a, an equal uh, to the British. And they instituted um, what their, their version of a naval academy, their officers applied a very scientific approach to the study of naval warfare, and uh, they completely reinvented their navy, uh, instituting uh, you know all sorts of, of programs that were much more sophisticated than what was happening in Great Britain, which really relied on experience, on the water experience, rather than book learning. And so uh, at, with the outbreak of the American Revolution and then with France's eventual entrance into that conflict, turning uh, colonial rebellion into a world war, France was poised uh, to, to make a difference. And Britain really wasn't fully aware of the transformation, transformation that had occurred. And uh, within weeks of France's entry into the war, uh, battles were fought on the English Channel uh, that made it uh, very clear, very quickly, that this was a new French Navy. And so uh, Washington was very hopeful that now he had the ability to to finally put an end to this war. But um, a, a, a fleet sailed over in 1778, had the chance to trap the, the British Navy at Philadelphia. Uh, they were in the process of evacuating 
the the British Army from uh, from in, from Philadelphia, and so that they could consolidate their forces in New York. But the French took too long to cross the Atlantic. The French got out of Philadelphia. There was the uh, hope that the French would attack the the French na- the British Navy at New York, uh, but the French decided they they their ships were too deep to go over the shoal at the harbor mouth of, of New York. And uh, and one thing led to another, and nothing nothing happened. Uh, and and so by 1780, uh, Washington was beginning despair, to despair that even though France clearly had the ability uh, to take the British head on, uh, the opportunity was never going to happen. And this is where I th- think you introduce the personalities which really do define how it came to pass, how, uh, you know, basically what brought about opportunity into success. And you focus in particular upon uh, the Comte de Grasse. And, and, and you have a very evocative description of, uh, of him in your book. I was wondering if you could give us a bit of, of a flavor of it and how his leadership really helps to uh, bring about the, the, the moment that Washington needed. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's really interesting. It, it really does come down to personalities. And, and the Comte de Grasse was a big man, uh, as tall if not taller than Washington. Uh, he had a reputation as as cl- sort of being a swashbuckler, a, a, a an impulsive uh, commander, uh, highly talented, but not necessarily the best judgment uh, in in um, the the fleet maneuvers in the 1770s preceding France's entry into the war. Uh, he had been uh, praised for his ability, uh, but criticized for the frequency in which he ran into other vessels. And so there was a slap dash element uh, to this this really uh, fierce uh, commander. Uh, so he, he's a very interesting personality. And uh, he was uh, picked uh, to to lead a large thirty uh, ship French fleet that was dispatched from Brest, uh, one of the primary uh, French ports uh, in France, uh, in in the uh, winter of 1781. That's the year of Yorktown, and and they sailed to the Caribbean. And one thing you have to remember is at this time. Once this became a, a world war, um, this involved not only the French as our allies, but the Spanish were also in on this. And and it was the Caribbean, uh, what were known as the West Indies, all those islands to the south, that were really the crown jewel uh, uh, from the perspective of both uh, the British and the French. Uh, yes, there were the colonies in North America, but the real money was to be made in the Caribbean. And uh, so uh, very quickly, the focus went from North America to uh, the Caribbean islands, much to the frustration of Washington. Part of the problem he had was that both the British and the French were obsessed with the, 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 the sugar islands, and most of the naval fighting was going on there. That's where de Grasse sailed when he left from France in, in the winter and spring of 1781. He... Um, he, he uh, uh, and and uh, it, it was a question of getting that those ships north uh, to to make things happen in North America. And so Comte de Grasse uh, sailed to, to the Caribbean uh, very soon. Quickly had an encounter uh, with the, the the British Navy, and uh, although they they fought them to a draw, it was clear that this was a new French Navy uh, that the British now had a a 
a, a an opponent that was potentially their equal. And and so uh, the year 1781 is a year in which Washington is absolutely desperate to have de Grasse and that great big fleet of 30 vessels sail up from the Caribbean and help him. Uh, he hopes they'll help him in uh, dislodging uh, the British from New York, uh, if not New York, perhaps the Chesapeake, where Cornwallis and and um, is is ensconced. And so this becomes the the the, the great work of of 1781 is somehow uh, getting that French fleet up uh, from the Caribbean and making an impact in North America. As you explained, though, that's not the only uh, activity that's taking place in the war. And you uh, uh, focus as well upon what's going on in the Carolinas regarding, as you mentioned, uh, Lord Cornwallis and also uh, Nathaniel Green and the uh, Patriot forces that were facing him. Uh, what was what exactly was Cornwallis trying to achieve in the Carolinas during this time? And how uh, and what how was Green opposing him? And how did that uh, chain of events lead to Yorktown. Yeah, it, you know, it's a very interesting uh, and complicated story of a series of interlocking narratives. Everything has had to fall into place for the eventual result. And one of the most important theaters of the war uh, had had uh, changed, uh, turned from uh, the middle states uh, to the south. The, the British had taken uh, Charleston. And Lord Cornwallis had then uh, marched into uh, the western portion of the Carolinas and defeated Horatio Gates at Camden uh, in a devastating blow to the Americans. And uh, Washington learns of this, and in the aftermath of, of uh, Benedict Arnold's treason, sends uh, Nathaniel Green, uh, one of his best generals, probably the general he trusts the most when it comes to advice, uh, sends Nathaniel Green uh, south to take over from Gates and to try to reclaim uh, uh, the momentum in the south. And so, and this is uh, uh, one of the more fascinating aspects of that year is while Washington is trying to get the help of the French Navy. He's also overseeing what's going happening in the South, and it's there the focus turns to Nathaniel Green, and and he, you know, he. It's just a fascinating story as he turns around uh, the American fortunes. Um, uh, he's he's uh, he, he's put in charge of a really ragtag uh, uh, group of soldiers that have has has been terribly defeated. And then, it, uh, but he has uh, in his ace in the hole is Daniel Morgan, uh, the great uh, Virginian uh, general, who he, he he sends west as as Green takes most of his army and tries to reconstitute the the core of the group so he can grow his army to the point that he can meet Cornwallis's British army on the field in the Carolinas. Uh, Morgan is is able to to uh, win an early defeat. Uh, victory in the Cowpens, in which he uh, delivers a blistering blow against uh, the, the the British cavalry officer uh, Tarleton, and uh, and then ultimately it comes down to a race across North Carolina, known as the Race to the Dan, the being the Dan River, uh, a diagonal race across the breadth of North Carolina, 
where Green is in retreat because he knows he has to grow his army to the point that he can uh, has a chance at taking on Cornwallis's a small but uh, very seasoned group of soldiers. He finally uh, makes his way across North Carolina into Virginia, swells his army until it's more than twice the size of Cornwallis, and then uh, uh, at, at Guilford Courthouse uh, in, in North Carolina, uh, Nathaniel Green meets uh, Cornwallis. They, it's a bloody, bloody battle, and basically a draw, although uh, the British claim victory because they are in possession of the field at the end of it. But uh, Cornwallis has suffered um, a terrible defeat. You know, half his best officers have been killed or wounded. Uh, his, his, he's basically exhausted and, and depleted his army, and he's forced to withdraw to Wilmington, North Carolina, on the coast to, to um, uh, bring some semblance of, of order back to his army. And rather than uh, do the same thing, and to return to South Carolina and Charleston and uh, harbor his defenses there, he decides to keep uh, the the semblance of of an offensive battle, and he marches into Virginia, where none other than Benedict Arnold, who is now a British officer, a brigadier general, and has de- uh, delivered his own devastating blow to the Virginia uh, forces uh, in Richmond. Uh, uh, there, uh, Cornwallis uh, meets up with the British forces already there, and thus begins the movement of troops that ultimately uh, leads uh, to victory at Yorktown. You describe in, in that, uh, it, when you're talking about the British, they're not just what Cornwallis is doing, but the f- fact that you have this very large force, uh, thousands of British troops that are in New York under Sir Henry Clinton. And that while and, and Cornwallis is expecting support from them, but Clinton just just never delivers on that. Yeah, yeah, you know it's 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 interesting. All of this is going on in the Carolina to the south in the Carolinas. There is the great navy in the Caribbean, but meanwhile, um, most of the soldiers in North America are around New York. You know, there's more than ten thousand British soldiers uh, pent up in New York. Uh, with Washington's much smaller army uh, to the north uh, on the Hudson, and it's it's been it's been that way for several years. It's a true stalemate, and uh, uh, Clinton uh, uh, is is there, sort of watching as Cornwallis takes the initiative to the south. Uh, Clinton uh, uh, is aware that you know we don't need to necessarily go from the the aggressive. We don't need to take the initiative here. If we can just outlast the Americans, uh, the French have been in this war long enough that they're beginning to think uh, we've just got to get out of here at some point. If we can just hang on, the Americans will be forced to the negotiating table, and Britain will end up with whatever lands um, its army possesses, and America will end up with whatever lands its army possesses, which will mean uh, the British will have... You know, basically half of the, the 13 colonies, and this would be uh, make it almost impossible for America to go on as an independent power. And so uh, Clinton sees this as a waiting game. Cornwallis seizes the initiative and, and runs wild, basically, across the South. And it's a fascinating dynamic. While Washington, on the, the Hudson, watches all this, with yet the other uh, element being the, the French expedition uh, particulaire, 
5,000 French soldiers uh, under General Rochambeau stationed in Newport uh, with a small navy of seven ships of the line. And uh, they are also just sitting there uh, and have been sitting there since the summer of 1780. And so uh, much to Washington's frustration uh, in the early uh, months of 1781, as all of this is going on with Nathaniel Green and Cornwallis to the south, it's a stalemate around New York. So what leads Washington to decide to concentrate all of his available forces uh, against Cornwallis? And how is it that he's able to bring this about? Because you described there's a lot of moving pieces here. You're talking about the forces in Newport. You're talking about Washington's army near uh, New York. And then, of course, you have the uh, forces that Nathaniel Green is leading uh, in the Carolinas and Virginia. Yeah, we have basically four or five theaters going on. There's a lot of moving parts, as you point out. And Washington's initial focus is on New York. You know, what he knows is for us to win this, we have to defeat a a British army of significant size. It can't be, you know, just a small battle. Uh, You know, we've already won uh, a battle at Saratoga uh, that helped bring France in, but it wasn't enough to end the thing. To end the thing, we need to have a significant victory. And in the beginning months of 1781, there's only a couple of thousand British soldiers in the the Chesapeake. Um, A victory there would be a help, but it would not necessarily uh, end this thing. It's only in New York where there is a a sizable army of sufficient size to to win the potential victory that will will, uh, end the war. And so that's where Washington is, is focusing. Gradually, however, with uh, Cornwallis's decision to move north from the Carolinas into Virginia, things begin to change. And soon there is an army of 7,000 soldiers in Virginia, and this uh, with about 10,000 soldiers uh, in New York. The balance is beginning to tip in the favor of Virginia. But uh, once again, but Washington says, hey, I, all my soldiers are, are in New York. Uh, and uh, with the French army uh, under Rochambeau being in Newport, how am I going to get these soldiers south to to uh, the, the Chesapeake? Uh, he he sees New York as the as the best possible uh, 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 focal point for the French Navy to arrive. But the French see it differently. Uh, they 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 realize that it's New York Harbor is a very difficult harbor for an opposing navy to enter. Uh, and that it, the, the odds are, are better in, in, Chesa- in the Chesapeake. And they basically force upon Washington the, the decision. They tell him uh, that, you know, the French Navy in, in the Caribbean, they're going to the Chesapeake, uh, and there's really nothing Washington can do about it. It's, it's very frustrating from his, his standpoint, but he, at, at, but he quickly realizes, okay, this is what they're going to do. That's what we all are going to do. And then he has the the, uh, incredible job of trying to get what's now the combined French and American army outside New York, uh, more than 500 miles south overland uh, to Virginia, uh, as the French Navy sails from the Caribbean north to the Chesapeake. And this is where uh, the year of Yorktown becomes absolutely excruciating from Washington's point of view in terms of the tension. Because, you know, the chances of a Navy sailing north out of the Chesapeake, uh, they're at the mercy of the winds and the currents. Anything can happen. There's also the British Navy um, in 
outside, the entrance to the, the – there's just so many things that can happen. And so um, as, as the, the story progresses, um, the tension rises. As Washington uh, uh, decides, it's, you know, the last – they've got to go for it. It's a big gamble, but he's going to march his army south to, to Virginia in hopes of getting there in time to surround Cornwallis uh, at the end of his lonely point in the middle of the Chesapeake. The march you describe is uh, really interesting, especially when you're describing Washington in effect returning home, and 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 in in, in a very yeah. literal sense too, not just metaphorical, because he has been a, away for so many years. He's entrusted a family member to uh, run Mount Vernon while he's gone, and now he's coming back to uh, where so much of it began for him. Yeah, and this is where it becomes a, a uh, personal story, and I think a very poignant personal story. I think people uh, don't appreciate the personal sacrifice Washington has done. You know, he hasn't been home in six years, <laughs> six years. And in that time, uh, from a long distance, he has been overseeing the renovation of, of uh, Mount Vernon, uh, which undergoes a lot of the changes that, that turn it into what we now regard uh, as Washington's Mount Vernon. He's seen none of it. It's all been going on. It's become his sort of uh, pet project. It's what has kept him sane <laughs> for these six years as he's undergone all this frustration uh, in the seemingly never-ending war. He's been overseeing the renovation of the home, which he had, you know, which uh, has been happening without him. I have to and say, so, it's fascinating to think he's probably the first person in history whose home renovation project kept him sane. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and part of the problem, part of the reason that may have been was that he was away. <laughs> no, if you're at home in the midst of a renovation, it, it, it will drive you crazy. But but yeah, so watch this this and this is one of, this is uh, the poetic justice of this this year is that Washington reluctantly decides that he okay I am going it's in my country's best interest to march this army south back to my home state back to my home of, of Mount Vernon where he stops on his way to Yorktown and I think it's one of the more um, you know poignant scenes in history where here Washington has you know it's it's a long arduous march it's it's a desperate race they're trying to convince uh, the, the British commander in chief Clinton in New York uh, in the early stages of the march that they aren't going that they are actually marching on New York that they, you know the last thing they would do is march south which seems impossible from an objective point of view and he succeeds in, in bamboozling uh, Clinton but then once it's clear that they they are heading south that they've reached the Philadelphia this is when it becomes a slow motion version of a, of a sprint. And, you know, it's just agonizing. And in the midst of all this, this desperate push to get his army to, uh, uh, to south, he stops at Mount Vernon, the place he hasn't seen in six years. He's only there for a couple of days. He's joined by Rochambeau, who, who catches up a day later. But can you imagine returning home? After all this, uh, and and uh, knowing that in just a few days' time, uh, the the uh, confrontation that will either make or break this this never-ending war is about to unfold. So, how is it that the naval battle of the Chesapeake came to pass, and and how was it that the French were able to emerge from it triumphant? Yeah. Well, de Grasse arrives from uh, the Caribbean 
uh, and, and pulls into uh, uh, the Chesapeake around September 1st of 1781. Uh, it's uh, no British fleet there. He just sails in with his huge 28, it's now down to 28 ships of the line, uh, and uh, takes over the bay, uh, clustering his ships at the, at the entrance. And as he, with some of his ships, begins to surround Cornwallis. This is great news. Washington gets the news in Chester, Pennsylvania, uh, on his way down. And it's looking great. This is, this is looking really good until just a few days later, on September 5th, a, a, uh, almost equally large British fleet under the command of Admiral Thomas Graves arrives from New York. Uh, they have um, a smaller group under, uh, has sailed up uh, from the Caribbean, joined the fleet in New York, and now they come down to, to, the, to the Chesapeake with the intention of rescuing Cornwallis. De Grasse sees the fleet approaching, and what unfolds will be the Battle of the Chesapeake. Uh, and it's been called the most important battle in the history of, of, of the world because not, you know, it's not the most spectacular battle necessarily, but its outcome would have just huge ramifications. If the British can defeat the French, which they have a reputation of doing, they will sail into the Chesapeake and rescue Lord Cornwallis. Uh, and Washington will be completely frustrated in, in his ambition. And, um, uh, but if the French can win and force the British back, which is a very tall order, particularly given the history of, of French and British encounters, then there is a chance that uh, uh, this plan that Washington is, has been, in a way, forced into will happen. And so on uh, September 5th, de Grasse's fleet uh, meets uh, 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 Graves' fleet uh, in, in what is just a fascinating battle. And, uh, and sure enough, for the, it's, it's an overstatement, but you could say for the first and last time, the French defeat the British, and uh, Graves is forced to return to New York for repairs, while de Grasse returns to the Chesapeake uh, and uh, resumes the siege just as Washington and Rochambeau arrive from uh, Mount Vernon uh, at Williamsburg, and thus begins the siege. Uh, that will ultimately uh, result in Cornwallis's defeat. You describe the siege in some detail, and you mention a lot of el you bring a lot of elements into it that we sometimes uh, don't necessarily think about, such as the sense of officers, uh, you know, such as Alexander Hamilton, who are hoping for some sort of glory to uh, you know to the, to, to you know, in terms of in, in combat, the fate of the uh, escaped slaves who had gathered in Yorktown, uh, but who now basically were were were, were caught between in this in this uh, very ho hopeless situation, and 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 you describe it an experience that is, is just utterly miserable. Why did Cornwallis let it go on for so long? And and did he have any opportunity for escape? Did he hope he thought he would, or was he? Uh, or, or was he anticipating that perhaps there'd be some sort of breakout or something, or, or some sort of relief from uh, Sir uh, Henry Clinton? Yeah, you know, it's it's one of the head scratching moments in history uh, because as soon as De Grasse sailed into the Chesapeake, uh, it was obvious uh, to Cornwallis that uh, this was the first step in in being surrounded, and what he could have done 
and uh, was to, to basically uh, retreat back into the Carolinas. It would have uh, been there would have been no glory in it, um, but it would have saved his army. And that's what everyone sort of expected he would do back in August uh, when the army is assembling and about to begin the march south uh, from New York to, to Yorktown. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, in a letter to his wife, says the chances are, you know, we're going to march down there and Cornwallis will retreat into the Carolinas and, you know, we will com- be completely frustrated. But what the heck, we're going to give it a try. And, um, you know, and, 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 but for some reasons that are still difficult to fathom, Cornwallis would stay at the end of his lonely point. He would um, uh, later claim that it was Governor uh, General Clinton's uh, promise of a rescue fleet that caused him to remain there, um, which is, is kind of self-serving, because as soon as he saw this huge fleet come in, that was when he, he, he had the opportunity to pull the ripcord, but he didn't. He hung in there. Well, I think uh, one of the things about Cornwallis in this finally in this year, 1781, he was hell bent to be on uh, the offensive. Uh, he, you know, he, there was nothing defensive about him. He was going to make things happen. You know, it. You know, he relentlessly followed Nathaniel Greene's army across the Carolinas. Fourth. The, the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, which, which you know, was devastating to his own army. He could have retreated into the Carolinas, South Carolina, but no, he pushed on into Virginia, where he wanted to have another showdown. And, um, and, and so retreat just was not in his vocabulary. And so he stuck it out and ultimately blamed uh, his superior in New York for, not, uh, for misleading him, for... Um, for uh, convincing him that uh, he would be rescued, where um, and so you know this is so Cornwallis was there, and and Washington couldn't you know time and time again in his diary Washington would say what is Cornwallis doing? Uh, why isn't he putting up more of a fight? Cornwallis from the very beginning of the siege could have met uh, Washington and Rochambeau's forces. Uh, long before uh, they set up around Yorktown, but he is incredibly passive throughout all this. Uh, and and allow, he um, very early on, he surrendered some of the high ground surrounding Yorktown, making it quite easy for the Allied forces to set up a siege uh, around Yorktown. And and uh, and he he would uh, they would he would put up a pretty Cornwallis would put up a pretty good fight. But uh, never did he really um, uh, was he willing to to uh, look at it uh, the situation realistically and save his army when he could have um, uh, and and avoided this disaster. And you describe the disaster in, in, in all of its humiliation for Cornwallis, the surrender, uh, the men having to uh, you know give up their weapons. And yet it's interesting how I, I, I just had to laugh at the scene that you, that you construct of these men marching out of Yorktown, depositing their weapons and then marching back in because there's nowhere else for them to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it is the ultimate humiliation for a British officer, uh, you know, and, and it was, it was what mitigated it a little bit was from their perspective, they weren't defeated uh, by uh, the colonists. <laughs> they were defeated by the French army. Uh, uh, that was the only reason they had lost. Uh, 
And um, but yeah, yeah, they were you know they ultimately, however, uh, they suffered the defeat that lost the war for them. And uh, and you know it's interesting to watch the dynamic um, uh, between Washington and and Cornwallis. Cornwallis uh, pleads uh, illness and and does not uh, appear at the surrender scene. And uh, it's you know there it's it's very testy between uh, the British and American officers uh, in at, at the dinners after the surrender. Uh, the British officers are very willing to socialize with the French officers, but turn their backs basically on the American officers. Much to the stress of Washington and the American officers, it's you know it's it's a it's it's a very interesting dynamic that I think is unappreciated. That um, uh, there was this kind of class thing uh, going on. Uh, the the French officers, you know, were were. Uh, viewed their their American cohorts as, as really uh, lower class and um, and it and, and you know and it's interesting to think well just in a, less than a decade's time they would experience their own revolution and and see uh, the forces that uh, were surging through America make their way to Europe hmm. well we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go could you tell us what you're working on now yeah, um, you know, I, I, my, my Washington obsession continues. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I, I, you know, this, this, um, for me, this project was was a fascinating one in that watch, watch, watching Washington uh, uh, through this year, and for him, it was a very emotional year. You of of Yorktown, you know, you see him ecstatic at one point when he hears that the uh, French Navy has arrived in Chesapeake, and then you see him absolutely livid with anger in other situations. And, you know, this is not the Washington that, that peers at us from the $1 bill. And so I, I, I just can't let him go. And, um, and on the other side of it, I, you know, I, I, after writing three books about the French, about the Amer American Revolution, I've, I've had enough of bloodshed for a while. And, um, and, and so what I'm, uh, and, and I'd love to just get out, uh, out in the field. I, one of the things I love about, um, uh, writing these books is the research trips, going out there and, and visiting the places and, and getting a bead on the, the uh, geography and, and just seeing uh, uh, what it was like and, and trying to get an imaginative sense of what the, what the forces were 200 years ago in the context, of course, of what, what we have now. And so for my next project, I've decided I'm going to continue to follow Washington. I'm going to follow Washington's travels after uh, the American Revolution. Uh, when he became president uh, in, in 1789, he realized that he was now uh, the uh, uh, governing uh, 13 states that re uh, saw themselves as basically 13 little nations. There really was no sense of, of solidarity, uh, uh, no sense of this being a United States. And he realized something had to be done. Uh, uh, and, and at the same time, he was the most popular figure in America and uh, revered throughout uh, the country. And he uh, set out on a road trip uh, to visit all 13 states. And this is this is before cars and, and uh, interstates. And he got in his coach and um, visited all the podunk towns in, in the 13 states, getting as far north as, as Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and as far south as Savannah, Georgia, uh, and, uh, and uh, going through a road trip of, of three different uh, 
uh, legs by which he would unite America through the power of his personality. Uh, so my wife and I and our dog, Dora, are have set out on our own road trip to follow Washington. It's going to be called Travels with George, and uh, we've already set out upon it. It's, 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 it's been a lot of fun so far, and I'm really, uh, uh, once I go out on the road in support of In the Hurricane's Eye, uh, my wife and I and presumably our dog, Dora, are looking forward to getting out on the road uh, in pursuit of George. Now, will you be doing this by carriage, or will you be doing it by car? <laughs> We're doing it by car, uh, and but you know it's it's been fascinating uh, following uh, George uh, up. Uh, initially, New York was the capital of, of the country, and his first uh, leg of the tour was through New England, and so uh, and he headed up uh, what is now uh, the Post Road, uh, which parallels I ninety five towards New Haven, and so following uh, the Post Road rather than uh, I ninety five. Gives you a, a, a real sense of the scale of of the of, of the United States at that point, of town after town. And there were times, I have to say, given the snarl of traffic, that Washington on his horse uh, he would travel about five miles an hour. Uh, I think Washington was beating us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's been a fascinating thing. Of you know, where uh, the subtitle is "In Search of Washington's America." And it's been fascinating to sort of see uh, and, uh, through the through the archives, see uh, and through Washington's diary, which he kept throughout this this journey, you see the America he witnessed then, and uh, and and witness the America we're traveling through now, and, and compare and contrast. It sounds like you're going to have a lot of fun writing this book. Yeah, well, so far, so good. We'll see. <laughs> well, Nathaniel, thank you very much for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. I hope you do, too. It's been a lot of fun. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.